Did you notice how much of the Psalms were featured in our worship this morning? That happens every Sunday morning. We're so blessed by Pastor Jay because we're filling out, we're, we're living out God's command in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us and to use the Word of Christ to teach and admonish each other and to teach and admonish each other through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Pastor Jay helps us obey that verse in our singing on Sunday morning. So I am so thankful for that, and I'm thankful for God's Word, that it's not just an educational word of certain things that we can learn about, but it's also education that is given in the format of songs, that God gives us the psalms and he gives us passages of Scripture that we can literally sing back out to God. So let's respond to God now as we get ready to look at his holy, precious word, and let's pray that it dwells richly in us and that God uses his word by his spirit to produce change in us this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a holy God, and you are in command of everything. You are Lord over all. You are master over all. You built it all. You made it all with your own breath, Lord, with your own words, which means that you own it all, Lord, including us. You own us, Lord. So may we submit to you. May we recognize your power and your authority as creator, as God over us, but also a God who through your son, Jesus Christ, chooses to call us reconcile us back to you, God. So we praise you for your attributes, for your character, for your nature. And Lord, may we display your nature through our behavior and the way that we bear the name of Christ in this community of Graham, Washington, for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, I have good news and I have bad news for you. The bad news is you're going to die. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but it could be. And then you face eternity, forever and ever, and what you do in this life will determine your existence for millions upon millions of lifetimes to follow. Imagine the importance of that. Imagine the importance of a pebble if it could change the face of an entire mountain. Imagine the importance of a single grain of sand if it could transform a seashore. That's your life. A faint breath that vanishes in the wind, but for better or worse, will impact your eternity. Your life is extremely important. Do you see your life that way? Do you see your children's lives that way? Do you see the lives of those around you that way? Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 called this importance the weight of glory, the reality that this momentary, sometimes seemingly mundane life has tied to it the implications of infinity. Do you live your life in recognition of this weight? Many people don't. Many live with tunnel vision day to day, not seeing much further into the future than the weekend or a due date or a vacation. The reason most people live this way is because they are masters of their own lives. Their God is their belly. 
is the way that God puts it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Their mind is set on earthly things, and also their end is destruction, these people who are masters of their own lives. What's worse is that those who live with this tunnel vision and also at the same time claim to be Christians. There are Christians who still live like the Philippians 3.19 person. Perhaps they were told that they were saved by their parents because they said a prayer when they were young that they don't remember. Or perhaps they falsely believe that they're saved because a local church baptized them and they assumed that this was some kind of confirmation of their salvation. These Christians may worry from time to time about whether or not they are really saved and often they will just repeat a prayer over the course of their life to calm this anxiety. But like the people Paul described in Philippians, their minds are also set on earthly things. The only difference being that they believe they can get away with it under a false and cheap understanding of grace. That because magical words were once said in the name of Jesus when it was invoked, that some kind of license has been given to them to live a life of spiritual apathy. One where they remain at the steering wheel of their soul. There are many who call themselves Christians simply because they have an acceptance of Christ. And that may be you this morning. They've decided that they don't hate Christ, so they assume that because they don't hate Christ, this must mean that they love Christ. Some call themselves Christians because their family is, and they embrace Christianity like they would embrace their skin color or their ethnicity or their culture. And finally, there are some who call themselves Christians because they merely and only accept Christ as a Savior. Their favorite Bible character is the thief on the cross, not because of the example of God's grace over sin in that man's life, but because that kind of man is the kind of person they want to be. Someone who lives a life of self-centeredness only to be saved by God's grace at the very end. That becomes their goal of what they hope to achieve in life. But very few very few call themselves Christians because they believe that Christ is Lord. Narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life, is what Jesus says in Matthew seven fourteen. And few find it, according to him. Most live for themselves. But whether you choose to make Christ Lord of your life or merely an accessory in your life, that decision you make in this short pebble of a life will impact your eternity. And you must choose that today, every single one of you. Today, every single one of you, you must walk out of these doors this morning having determined for yourself whether you or Christ will be Lord of your life. And that decision will impact you forever. It's the same challenge that I'm giving to you that Paul gave to the Colossians. In fact, this very challenge represents the entire purpose of Paul's letter to the Colossians. I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. We've been in Colossians for almost a year now. Going verse by verse through this letter that Paul wrote to this church in what is now today Turkey, but was then called Asia Minor. 
Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, how he began his letter to the Colossians. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, he, referring to himself and Timothy, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's why most of you like coming to church. That's actually why most Christians enjoy going to church. They like to keep it limited to that. They want to learn about Jesus. They have a limited acceptance of Jesus, and they enjoy receiving information about Jesus. And the same was true for the Colossians. They had received the gospel message, and there was a church in Colossae. But Paul in verse 10, the verse after verse 9, shows why he's writing his letter to the Colossians. Not just so they can have a knowledge of his will and leave it at that, so that they can be entertained by it or encouraged by it, is a spiritual word that we throw around. But look at what he says in verse 10. So that the point of receiving the knowledge of God is for the purpose in verse 10 of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And you have heard me repeat that phrase almost every single sermon in Colossians. Because that's the purpose, that's the point. Who is Christ in your life? What role does he play? And is he master over your life? Do you see him merely as an accessory or do you see him as your king? That is the point that Paul is trying to get across to the Colossians and it's why he's talking so much about Christ in this letter. The letter to the Colossians is the letter about Christ. It's one of the most powerful books in the Bible with Christology, the theology of Jesus. And it's no surprise that in a letter where Paul is going to challenge and encourage the Colossians to make Jesus the master of their lives, that he would spend so much ink and so much time explaining the beauty and authority and power and depth of exactly who Jesus is. Look now at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. These are tentpole verses in the letter to the Colossians where Paul says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, notice that, he doesn't just say, just as you have received Christ Jesus, but as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Paul is not just satisfied like someone at maybe a Billy Graham crusade or some kind of evangelism tent revival to go to Colossae and preach the gospel and to have the Colossians accept it and for him to give a pat on the shoulder and say, praise the Lord, so many people got saved, I'm going to go about my merry way to the next city. No, his concern is not that they just accept Jesus, but they accept him as Lord is what we see in verse 6 and that they show that they have accepted him as Lord by following him as Lord by actually putting their money where their mouth is, by not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, and just as they have received him as Lord, so also to walk in him as Lord. Today's verse in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3 verse 17 is the climax of this letter. It is the big idea of Colossians. Everything is like climbing a mountain, pointing to and leading up to this peak, this climax that we see in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 3. After it, we find some very simple application points 
and some concluding thoughts by Paul. It's downhill after this in a good way, but this is the mountaintop of the letter. And because of the importance of God's word, because of the authority of God's word, let's actually stand as I read verse 17. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. And hear the words and reflection of everything that has been said thus far this morning. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? You may be seated. This is the mountaintop of the Bible. And if our life is but a pebble that can impact a mountain and a grain of sand that can change a seashore, we must determine, we we must walk out of these doors deciding whether or not this verse will remain simply a fortune cookie verse that is an encouraging, nice reminder of how we think we maybe ought to live or a demand, a qualifier, a characteristic that is not optional for what a true faithful follower of Jesus, what a true person who has truly accepted Christ will do in their life. This is a roadmap, just as the previous verse was a blueprint for what a church should do. Verse 17 is a culmination of all these verses and a blueprint of what the Christian should do. It is a description of the saved life. And you must evaluate your own heart to God's word this morning. So we're going to look at four things that come from this verse that describe a truly saved person. A person who has not just accepted Jesus Christ emotionally, but has faithfully accepted Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. The first point is this. Saved people desire to serve Jesus in all areas of their life. Not just the public ones, not just the easy ones, not just the culturally popular ones, as they may deal with worldview or politics, but a true saved person who has accepted Christ desires and chooses to serve Jesus in all the areas of their life. We see this at the beginning of verse 17, where Paul says, whatever you do. The way that that's written, you could also say that as whatever you may possibly do, whatever may possibly become before your life, whatever situation, whatever it could possibly be, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's exhaustive. It's holistic. All of your sin has been forgiven, so give all of your life to serve Jesus. His salvation is complete, so make your trust in him complete. Don't corner off the holes of your heart and keep closets in your life that you keep for yourself. Or you say, well, I will, when I show up to church on Sunday, give that part of my life to Christ, but my entertainment habits, Monday through Saturday, well, I'll keep that for myself. Or my internet search history, I'll keep that for myself. These are not areas of conviction. Sometimes we abuse the concept of conviction 
to really just give us license to choose which part of our lives we want to make Christ Lord over. There are certain things that the Bible does not forbid that some people may have a conscience about, but Jesus demands that every area of your life, your thought life, your words, your attitudes, your entertainment choices, the spending of your money, your relationships, he demands all of it. As one church father said in church history, there's not a single thing that God does not look over and declare as mine in his words. Do you have that kind of attitude towards Jesus? Because Jesus is glorified when you have that attitude. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 2, one of the most famous verses in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, God gives over 600 laws, including the Ten Commandments. And sometimes we think of these laws as merely a legalistic system that was outdated that God was going to improve upon, or just something to just really show the Israelites just how bad they were, which that is true in part. But God gave the law because he had made a covenant with his people. They were his treasured possession, and he was their God, meaning that the way that the Israelites lived was a reflection of their God. Therefore, God said, because I am a holy God, you will evangelize, so to speak. You will show the world what kind of God you serve by the way you behave. That's why God says, you shall be holy to the Israelites. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that verse is repeated by Peter even in the New Testament. Because we choose to submit to a holy God, because we claim a holy God and we claim the name of a holy God, we must represent him and worship him and point others to him by displaying his holiness in our life. As Micah chapter 4 verse 5 says, all peoples, every community, every nation, you might say, every congregation, they all walk in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the, what's that word? The Lord, our God, forever and ever. That word Lord was exclusively given, Adonai, to Elohim, to God himself. I want you to think about that. Every congregation, every church worships a God. Every single one. The question is, is whether it is the God of the Bible. It may be a pastor that that church worships. It may be a specific program. It may be a program. It may be a culture. It may be a school. It may be an event. It may be a set of ideals. But every church, through its calendar, through its behavior, through its sermons, indicates what God they serve. Our God that we serve at this church must be the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we do at this church must be in offering and service to him. That's why when Paul says, in word and in deed, that's comprehensive. That's talking about everything. We have some examples from Scripture. Romans 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 18. You can look at these later. These are just a few examples of the many times where the Bible will use the term word and deed to describe exhaustiveness. Many of you, you simply want Jesus as a Savior, but you actually don't want to give your life to him. You want Jesus to save your life, but you don't want to surrender your life. 
true faith surrenders your life to Jesus and truly saved people desire to serve Jesus in all areas of their life. Whatever they may do, make Jesus their master. Point number two, saved people desire to do everything under the power and for the purpose of Jesus. This is what Paul means in verse 17 when he says, whatever you do, do everything. Usually we misquote this verse. We say, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. We conflate that with 1 Corinthians 10.31 because in this verse it specifically says that whatever you may do, do it in the name of Jesus. And look at the name of Jesus that's given in verse 17. This name for Jesus isn't given in this specific iteration very often in the New Testament, but Paul very purposefully gives it here, that anything you may do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't call him Jesus Christ here. He calls him Jesus Lord here, Jesus Master here. That's what Lord means. The word Lord means master, boss, one who is in charge of. The Hebrew name is Adonai. The Greek word is kurios, Lord. He says, you must do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was something that occurred often in the Bible. People would often do things or say things in the name of someone, whether it was in the name of a government official or the name of a king or some kind of emperor. When they say that we are doing this in the name of someone, they're saying, it that, they're saying that we're doing this under the authority, under the power of, and for the purpose of this person. Maybe the most famous example in the New Testament is actually Acts chapter 4. Our Precepts Bible study, they're going through Acts right now. I've heard rave reviews about that. If you're looking for a Bible study at this church, I encourage you to consider going through Precepts. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, the apostles, they're teaching and uh, they're healing. They're, They're doing amazing things. And it's asked of them, by what power or by what name did you do this? The idea of doing something in the name of someone is suggesting that you are getting the power from that person to do it. And Peter famously replies in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I believe we have verse 12 there as well that we can look at where Peter continues and says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When we do everything to Jesus as our master, as our Lord, we do everything in the name of him because we show others around us through our changed life that Jesus has done a supernatural work in our heart. When someone says, hey, you seem different, why is that? The response should always be, because I'm no longer king of my life, Jesus is. And because Jesus is king and he's living and powerful, he has the power to make me a better husband, or to make me a better wife, or to make me a better coworker, or a better boss, or a better brother, or a better sister. We do these things in the name of Jesus because doing so points to the power of Jesus. Why would other people believe that Jesus is king if they don't even see Jesus as king in your behavior? It would be a lie. It would be contradictory for people to be told by you that Jesus is king, yet you do not make him king in your life and relying on his power to obey him. This is the difference between true gospel living 
and legalism. Legalism simply attempts to show in front of others what appears to be godliness under their own name, under their own power, to lift themselves up and to point to themselves. A true life that is living for the Lord is not one of legalism, not one that is wrapped up in obedience inappropriately like a Pharisee, but one who is considering themselves dead to sin and alive to God. One who recognizes that the only reason why they can obey and repent from sin and make Christ master of their life is because they have been crucified with Christ and they have been raised with Christ. And that Christ dwells in them by his and enables them to make him master over everything. So saved people, they desire to do everything under the power and for the purpose of Jesus. And one more verse I want to show you is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Pastor Jay mentioned this earlier, and we didn't even share notes. We didn't even know that was going to happen. But at the name of Jesus, notice that word then again. Uh, at the name, I'm sorry, this is the wrong one, uh, but that one's coming later. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God that works in you. But just a few verses before that, we see that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You need to know that every single knee in this room, every single knee at the Safeway grocery store, every single knee at the bar down the street in any church, they are all going to recognize that Jesus is Lord, all of them. The question is, is are they going to recognize it now? Are they going to recognize it later? Are we going to recognize it here in this room? Or are we going to recognize it in the throne room? That's a decision that we all have to make. Let's now look at point number three. Saved people live as if Jesus is their master. We've already alluded to this. That everything must be done in the name of Jesus, but not simply the name of Jesus as a lyric to a song, or as a curse word, or as a figurine on a table, but to live for Jesus as master of their life. I want you to look at this verse that Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 14, verse 9. Look at this. This is an incredible verse talking about why Jesus died. That to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. That's not the way that we hear the gospel preached very often. We say to this end, Christ died to forgive you of your sins so you can live in peace and be free from fear and all those little Christian cliches that we like to throw around. The Bible makes it clear that, no, the reason why Christ died and rose from the grave was so that he could be Lord of your life. Jesus died for your sin in order to glorify himself and praise the Lord for that. God, being God over everything, has no other choice but to worship himself and himself only, and he glorifies himself by dying for you and living for you and, for, and living uh, for your sake and forgiving you so that you may be reconciled to God and not be master of your life, but to make God your master. That's the purpose of the gospel, for Jesus to be Lord in your life. Look at 6.22. Paul refers to Christians as slaves of God, and that the result of salvation should be fruit that leads to sanctification. If you really claim to be a Christian, do you have an attitude that sees yourself as a slave to God? And even more so, if you claim to be saved by Jesus, is there fruit, is there evidence in your life that Jesus is actually king? If there's not, 
it may be proof that you have never actually truly accepted Jesus, but you just did it in an emotional, Americanized, shallow, non-biblical form of it. The final and fourth point leading up to our big idea is this, or saving the big idea for the end, is that all of this is not to show your good works before men, it's not to somehow pay back God for his grace, it's not to prove to God that you were worth dying for, that all of this is a means of worshiping God, that making Jesus Lord of your life is how you express thankfulness and worship to the Lord. That word thankfulness appears at the end of three verses in a row. Look at verse 15 and 16 and 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. All of those statements end with being thankful. The point of this is that we're not earning anything, but that we're praising God for what he has earned for us on the cross. Your life is a song of worship. And it's even so much more important than the songs of worship you sing in here because the song of worship that you live in your actions, making Christ Lord of your life, is seen by the world around you. And they will know the kind of God you serve by the song you sing with your life. I began by giving you the bad news. Well, here's the good news. Christ is king. He's alive. He's not just a concept or a doctrine. He's a man, and he's God. Nothing happens that's a surprise to him because he's Lord even over time. He's currently seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back with his kingdom. He's not safe, but he's good. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the King of all kings. He's the master of all masters because he is Lord. Your big idea is that saved people serve Jesus. Being saved by Jesus results in serving Jesus. Because he's Lord. He's Lord even over death. The death that will ultimately take me and will ultimately take you could not ultimately take him. Death could not hold him. Death could not stop him at his first coming and it won't stop him from his second coming. Because when Christ does come back again, death will be no more. It will be the last enemy to be destroyed. It will be swallowed up in his victory because he is Lord. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. His commands are not burdensome. He gives rest to those who labor and are heavy laden. There is now no condemnation for those who are found in him. He calls those who follow him friend. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He prepares a table for them because he is Lord. So surrender your life to him. Sell your world for him. Give him the keys to everything. Forfeit your thoughts to him. Relinquish your words to him. Dedicate your children to him. Submit your marriage to him. Depend on him by faith for your forgiveness and submit to him by faith for your salvation. This kind of life cannot be manufactured. It can't be faked. It can't be performed. This kind of completely sold out life for Jesus can only come by faith. The just shall live by faith. To put your faith in Jesus Christ today, not just as Savior, but Lord of your life, and follow him.
because he is Lord. Heavenly Father, you are Lord. You made yourself known to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. As we get ready to take communion, may we be reminded that you are Lord of our life and that we must follow you. That to take communion in any manner less than this is unworthy and inappropriate. That your death and resurrection resulted in a changed life for our sake. So, Lord, may you be glorified in our life. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen.